0: Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we wanna take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you wanna see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. Yeah, we can see it, perfect. Great,
1: okay. (laughs) Here on Salem Avenue, it used to be The Last Straw, which opened in 1973, and it was the second gay bar in Roanoke's history, preceded only by the tree.
0: Traces of Roanoke's queer history are all
2: around us. And so I feel like that's a story that has never been told, but needs to be. Historians,
0: elders, and the new generation are coming together to tell stories of backstreet bars, campfire chats, and welcoming front porches where Roanoke's LGBTQ women have found refuge for decades. In this episode of Hometown Stories, we're highlighting Pride Month with a walking tour. It's a look at the past and a path forward for queer connections in a Southern city.
3: Because it's certainly changed my life and the lives of many of the women who are involved. So important to be there for each other.
0: It's a sunny, blue sky kind of day in downtown Roanoke City when I meet Alice Spedic at the Market Building.
2: Just gonna cross
1: the street safely. <laughs>
0: This part of downtown features restaurants, bars, barbershops, and boutiques. But today, our task is to imagine it as it would have been decades ago. We head for the other side of the intersection, where Alice begins our tour. Um, From
1: 1977, the Roanoke Times described a proposed city ordinance to ban transvestites from appearing in public spaces. It was aimed at the market queens who worked around the city market building. just behind us. They were, according to the newspaper, they were men posing.
0: Alice is one of several volunteers who lead walking tours of Roanoke's queer history, unveiling to participants both the sweet and the unsavory experience of the LGBTQ community. Alice comes prepared with a manila folder of articles, maps, and memories recorded in oral history interviews, like this one from Greta. Here's what she recalls.
1: So I went down to the market and there were cars that were there and there were drag queens on every corner, and I was like, what kind of madness is this? And this is where, where everyone, everybody was prostituting. We don't call it that. We call it selling after-hours produce. So I got into that for years, and they had a lot of redneck bars and things downtown. A lot of people didn't like us because of
0: the way we are. That Roanoke Times article from 1977 Alice referenced starts off by explaining how the proposed ordinance to ban the market queens was part of a general crackdown on homosexual activity in Roanoke. Urban planning and policies, like the Design 79 project in 1979, changed the layout of downtown. Alice says it's part of what pushed trans people, market queens, and sex workers to outer edges of the community. But there were bright spots, places of connection and conversation. As we walk, Alice's storytelling turns back the clock. They hold out a laminated piece of paper with a hand-drawn map. So, I love this little
1: map of of this little area of downtown. This was a bar map of Roanoke, um, published in the Virginia Gazette, which I really (laughs) wish still uh, existed because what an amazing name. It was published in 1978. Um, And it's just like a little map of all the different gay bars. So here we have Elm Avenue, um, 581, where you exit on Elm. Um, Here's Campbell and Salem. So here we are in front of the last straw. And here's Jefferson Street.
0: Alice leads us to a brick building currently operating as a gospel outreach center. But if those walls could talk, they would tell you about the days of the last straw. Roanoke's second gay bar opened in the 1970s. At one point, Roanoke had as many as six gay bars. For Alice, this inspection of history also leads to moments of introspection,
1: and also it like highlights like how did how did how did gay people LGBTQ people like find community um, when there like wasn't the internet, there wasn't Tinder, there wasn't Instagram or. Um, uh, even, you know, uh, the internet in general. And so, you know, publishing things like that, having um, gay magazines was so much more, um, uh, much of a reliable source, and word of mouth, of course.
2: For a long time, many people felt like this is not a community with a history. And so it's about showing that now LGBTQ people have been here for a long time, and we can use all of these tools to document that story.
0: Dr. G. Samantha Rosenthal is making the process of documenting Roanoke's queer history possible. I catch her during office hours in between classes at Roanoke College in Salem. Here, she teaches history and is co-coordinator of the Gender and Women's Studies concentration. After moving to Roanoke from New York several years ago, Rosenthal came out as a trans woman. She was pleasantly surprised to find in the Southwest Virginia city, a warm and welcoming community.
2: So I show up here in Roanoke, Virginia and I'm kind of looking around and I'm like, um, you know, how's this gonna go? What is this gonna be like for me as a newly out queer person who's not familiar with the landscape? And all that I would heard were the stereotypes about the South, about Appalachia, Southwest Virginia, that it would be very you know, unpleasant for queer people. But the reality is that very quickly as I met LGBTQ people here, it was like, oh, these people are awesome. And there's a long history of community here. Tons of institutions, organizations, spaces.
0: With an expertise in public history, Dr. Rosenthal went digging to learn more about the people who had come before her. What she found was a rich history of community and belonging.
2: And so I feel like that's a story that has never been told but needs to be.
0: Interested in the history of her new home, Dr. Rosenthal got to work researching Roanoke's queer spaces and space makers.
2: So, I mean, the first gay bar we know of opened in the early 1950s. It was 70 years ago that
0: the trade winds came to the corner of Franklin Avenue and Elm Avenue in the southwest section of
2: Roanoke City. There were gay guidebooks back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, before the Internet. And they'd be, they'd be published in New York or San Francisco and list gay places around the country that you could go to. And the trade was listed in there from the very beginning. So Roanoke was on the map of national LGBT knowledge. Um, we have a story of New York activists even coming down here in 1971. So just shortly after the gay liberation movement had started in New York and they came down and met with Roanoke activists and they talked and shared information and stuff. So, I mean, all of that was happening here over 50 years ago. Um, Our first gay rights group was founded in 71 uh, at that time. So that's over 50 years ago. The first gay rights demonstration in Roanoke was over 50 years ago. The more Dr. Rosenthal looked, the more she
0: found. And when she began showing up to LGBTQ spaces in town, She would tell people she was a history professor. She wanted to be put to use. What unfolded was an all-call for memorabilia, memories, and memoirs of gay life in Southwest Virginia. The Southwest Virginia LGBTQ History Project came
2: alive. And the very first time we did that back in 2015, people were saying, I have tons of old documents I've been keeping for 30, 40 years and never knew that anyone would take them. Maybe we can make an archive. And other people were saying we should do oral histories with some of the elders who can talk about the past 50 years here. And so we started to do that work. And I just felt like I was, you know, I had the right skills to just kind of be here and be like, OK, I know how to do archives. I know how to do oral histories, exhibits, that kind of stuff. It was around that time that L.A.-based
0: filmmaker Catherine L. Baronic got a call. She had a story to tell. Rosenthal's crew wanted to preserve it.
3: After doing it and, you know, taking that trip down memory lane, if you will, uh, I was like, wait a minute, this is my story. The, I wanna tell this story, you know, and so I did.
0: Back in the late 70s, young, freshly graduated, Veronica began sending out resumes to TV stations all over the country. The call was answered in Roanoke And within a few years' time, she became WDBJ7's first female photographer and then its first female director. I knew that I had
3: to be 150%. I couldn't just be just as good as the guys. I had to really stand out because women weren't doing it at the time. And I can coil a cable with the best of them, (laughs) and I was constantly surprising these guys. Plus, I... I hate to say it, but I had, uh, uh, I I talked like a sailor. (laughs) So I could go toe to toe (laughs) that way.
0: Veronica says she loved her job, but she couldn't ever bring her full self to work. She was out, just not out, out. And she feared she would lose her job.
3: You couldn't you just couldn't be gay, you know, and even when you were going to a bar, you watched, you know, walking from your car and you just kind of made sure. Even when the park first opened, they had membership cards and I found mine and I had put a fake last name on it. And (laughs) it kind of cracks me up, Uh, but you,
0: you protected yourself. Just as an aside, the park is a gay nightclub in Roanoke, not an actual park. But anyway, like anyone, Veronica wanted community. And eventually, she found it.
3: Well, the only, the only place that I knew to go was the softball field. It's a cliche, but it was true. They, they weren't all lesbians. I, I don't want to insinuate that. But there were a lot of them. I dated a number of them, and, uh, and I met other people. I didn't play myself. Um, I was strictly a fan.
0: From the bleachers, Baronic began forming connections. Eventually, the group of lesbians started meeting regularly, every first Friday of the month, at a woman-owned restaurant in Salem. When that restaurant closed, the get-togethers moved to homes with open-door policies.
3: And we just welcomed everyone. And it was women from all walks of life. And I like to say from the mountains and the valleys and everybody was coming and uh, and it really grew. And the organization itself grew.
0: And thus, the First Friday Club was born. Every first Friday of the month, someone would host a party and fill up living rooms and porch chairs with new and old friends. They had a quarterly newsletter called Skip Two Periods. They had an annual formal dance, a P.O. box, and eventually, they hosted summer retreats for gay women from all around the region with classes on radical feminism, CPR workshops, games, and friendship.
3: It was just a time for, uh, for them to relax and meet other women who were going through the exact same thing, you know, who on Monday morning would get up, get ready, go to work and be a totally different person. And you couldn't talk to anybody at work about what you ju- had just done for the weekend. You know, you had to keep it all very private. So we just provided that uh, that group to uh, to share and become friends uh, with people that you never would have met before. It was wonderful until they found out that we were lesbians and they would tell us we couldn't come back. So. Uh, you know, we just, we didn't let that stop us. We would just find another place. And we did that um, for more than 10 years.
0: After relaying all of this in her oral history interview for the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ History Project, Veronica got to thinking.
3: Well, we're all getting old, and I didn't want to lose the stories. And I wanted to save it as a slice of lesbian history.
0: In 2016, she began working on a documentary, The Unlikely Lesbians of First Friday, that she would eventually go on to show in cities around the country, including Roanoke's Grandin Theater. It features photos and film and interviews with long lost friends, women who found a family in First Friday.
3: And as our society has changed and we've been welcomed or uh, put up with, accepted, whatever, it's not as uh, necessary maybe to have strictly lesbian groups or uh, it, it's all about community. And, and I think that that's the legacy that we left is that um, the importance of finding each other and being supportive of each other.
0: What Baranek knew and what Rosenthal would discover is that social life for gay women was mostly out of sight the gay clubs and bars that did exist around town mostly catered to white gay men.
2: You know, that's part of the thing about queer women's history. It's a bit more, um, it's a bit less kind of in public space. It's a bit more in people's homes. It's a bit more underground. Um, Some of that has to do with the economic realities of queer women making less money than men do, Just this is still true today about male and female, you know, incomes. But when you have, you know, two women making a household together, they're going to make less than straight couple or gay male couples. So, you know, lesbian economic power has always been very small. And so it's harder to create restaurants, bars, nightclubs, these kind of spaces. So that's part of it. Um, There's also just the feeling of you know, kind of exclusion from even the male-dominated gay spaces. But it was no less active, and as Rosenthal
0: found, they held on to special mementos of the time. Photos, menus, maps, newsletters, event plans, all available to tell the stories of a time that was. They're now in a special archive held within the Roanoke City Public Library and available online.
2: It's amazing to see that when you present local, regional LGBTQ history to young people, it gives them a sense that they belong here, right? It's actually a very powerful um, experience to encounter that history and realize, you know what? Southwest Virginia has a place for someone like me. Now, on the other hand, for elders, it's, important to give them a sense that their stories matter and that we're listening, right? That they worked so hard and faced violence and discrimination and harassment to pave the way for today.
0: Since 2015, Rosenthal and her team of volunteers have conducted more oral histories, hosted exhibitions and events, started walking tours, book guides, and now a podcast. Dr. Rosenthal has also written a book Living Queer History, Remembrance and Belonging in a Southern City.
2: I've also had reactions from straight, cisgender Roanokers saying that, you know, this information is helpful to them to to think about the kind of city they want to make as we move forward, the kind of way they want to be a citizen and be a neighbor and live here. You know, they want to know more about the LGBTQ community so that they can be a good be a good neighbor and be a good citizen.
3: Really cute name,
1: here it is, night and day. They described it, quote, no disco music and no dancing either. Georgetown atmosphere, which should attract those into conversation and art. Terrific deli sandwiches, and if you can handle hot fudge sundaes and draft beer, the desserts look like a picture.
0: On our walking tour, Alice points out the old discos and cruising spots around town. Um, We're standing at the entrance
1: to Bullet Avenue, um, which was the city's main gay cruising district in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, it was also known as the block. So this is where gay men would meet each other to engage and um, find sexual partners um, and engage in sexual encounters. Um,
0: Alice says the research and oral histories show how urban planning, police raids, and homophobic laws means there was both destruction of queer spaces and then creation springing up in new forms. For Alice and others, there's much to study and much to appreciate. That's
1: the queer community in Roanoke, which kind of when I moved here only like about a year ago, um, I didn't think I was going to find such a rich um, queer community and a queer history. But um, meeting uh, Dr. Rosenthal really and getting involved in the history project has really opened my eyes to the fact that um, Gay people have been around forever, and we can continue to be around. Um, and we have just a rich history as any other community. There's just something indescribable about like standing in front of a building that used to house cruising sites and like uh, drag bars and, and things that aren't here anymore, but like definitely used to be like huge community spaces. And and also the specialness of the walking tours. Um, it just gives you this like immediacy. To what used to be there and what is now there. Um, Like, this site is really interesting
0: because it's like. Today in Roanoke, there's just one officially queer designated nightlife spot, far fewer than the days of Murphy's Super Disco, Night and Day, The Last Straw, and the days of First Friday are long gone. But, there's a new generation, seeking the same kind of connections Veronica sought out in her earliest days in Roanoke. Now, a group called Second Friday hosts monthly pop-up events. Paying homage to their founders, group members look to Instagram for updates about neighborhood picnics, proms, and roller skating meetups.
3: It's awesome. I mean, my old house is on the walking tour. <laughs> yes, and it cracks me up. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it was... Uh an honor. I mean, I love that they have elevated our history, and not just First Friday, but you know, all of the folks in Roanoke, Southwestern Virginia, that they recognize the value of our contributions to the community on a whole and to our community in particular. And it just,
0: uh, it tickles me. <laughs> For Baronic, it's a reminder that even when public policy changes, resources go online and clubs close their doors, community is the foundation upon which pride in oneself can be built.
3: Because it's certainly changed my life and the lives of many of the women who are involved. It's so important to be there for each other.
0: To see the archives, listen to oral histories, or look at the walking tour schedule, you can visit the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ History Project online. There, you can listen to their podcast. And you can learn more about the Trans Wellness Fund, supported with proceeds from Dr. Rosenthal's book. We've got a link to those and other resources on our website, wdbj7.com. Next week on the Hometown Stories podcast, a family scrapbook unlocks memories of Roanoke's civil rights era, a time when the Wilkinson sisters were growing into well-raised
2: soldiers. And I remember him sitting down having a talk to us saying, you know, y'all got to be very brave because I want to have something I want you guys to do.
0: If the Wilkinson sisters were soldiers for the cause, their father, the Reverend Dr. R.R. Wilkinson, was the general.
3: Reverend Wilkinson not only risked his
1: own safety and security, but he risked that of his family. And he risked that of of, uh, Hill Street Baptist Church. There were churches bombed in the South for doing a lot less work.
0: It was as president of Roanoke's NAACP that the Reverend worked in a secret biracial committee strategizing integration of Roanoke schools, lunch counters, and theaters. And so there really was, I think, a more holistic approach to integrating Roanoke That happened in a nonviolent, quiet
3: way, if you will.
0: Decades later, the Wilkinson family returns to Roanoke to see their patriarch's legacy remembered. That story next Wednesday on the Hometown Stories podcast. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Liana Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelme. We'll see you next time.
2: Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.